We're going to be in Exodus chapter 30 and 31. Exodus 30 and 31, and we are going to finish this section beginning in chapter 25, running through chapter 31 in the book of Exodus. Um, And as we've studied through just, just five chapters, but realize that in receiving these, Moses was on the mount 40 days, 40 nights. And it's not that there was more given, but, but I imagine detail and explanation and maybe, maybe review. I can just see the Lord because a, a good teacher's a repeater, right, Les? So I can just see the Lord having Moses repeat back to him what he said, and when he gets it wrong, he says, no, 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 let's try this one more time. <laughs> but the word as we are given is remarkable in its clarity and in its format in this fifth ascent of Moses, he's still on the mountain. He's receiving now the divine law, the tabernacle blueprints and the priestly preparations. If we've noted, perhaps you've noted, a flow to these things, a logical flow through the whole process, one thing leading into the next and bringing the truth to us. It will end with Moses actually being handed the stone tablets, as I mentioned a few moments ago. But in the last... Two chapters, it's been pointed out, chapter 30 and chapter 31, that to some it might seem like a random collection of odds and ends. You know, maybe like we would do things, a postscript. You write the whole letter and then you remember, oh, there's something I was supposed to say. Oh yeah, there's that, I forgot all about that. And so we'll add it in and we'll make addendums to to our presentations. The forgotten details and afterthoughts. But, you know, important things that are left out of the logical orderly flow. And that's how even some commentators look at this saying, well, you know, Moses is kind of pulling in a bunch of things here at the end that don't really seem to, I mean, they're important, but they don't fit the flow. They should have been shared earlier or in a different location. Let me just share with you all tonight that God's word is never random. It's never arbitrary. It's never haphazard. It is always organized, deliberate, and intentional. And so we're gonna consider that tonight, kind of as a theme as we study these two chapters, the intentional word of God. Psalm 19, verse seven says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, which pleases me. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart or the spirit. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I mean, this does not sound like something haphazard. When God speaks a word, it is always at the right time with the right intention for the right purpose. Psalm 138 verse two lifts this up, says, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth or your grace and truth. For you have magnified your name according to or upon, or even perhaps above all your name. You magnified your word according to your name. Your word upon your name. Your word, the King James translates, above your name. And that word can be translated above. So significant, so specific, so ideal. And I keep looking up at the camera instead of at you all. I'm gonna try and shift my gaze back down. I'm so used to this. (laughs) 
I'll try and give you guys a shout out as well. But his, his word is so significant, he aligns it with his very name and his nature. So Exodus 30 and 31 are not postscripts. However, it is interesting to note that in the midst of detailing the altar of incense, which we did on Sunday at the beginning of chapter 30, the first 10 verses, all of a sudden, seemingly randomly, the Lord calls for a census and a poll tax. It's like, that's out of left field. Lord, why is that here? Well, there's a reason. Let's look at it. Picking up in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 30, the Lord also spoke to Moses saying, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. And this is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 giras, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. And I'll just point out to you, I don't know if I have this ahead in my notes, but point out right now that this is a weight or a measure, not a coin. So when he says a half shekel here, this is a measure rather than, you know, it's not like a, like a penny or something. So it's a specific measure that he's, which is why it says the shekel is 20 giras, because it's half of that. So you want to give 10 giras worth. You want to give this weight, this measure. He says, Everyone, verse 14, who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The word numbered can also be translated mustard. So uh, I'm not talking about mustard and ketchup. We're talking about like mustering an army. So some think, and, and it's not any more specific than that, but some think it's the 20 and older males of the people of Israel because they are the ones who would be mustered for warfare. And that's where this tax is going. So every male, 20 and older. But it, it could be all people because it does say everyone. So uh, we'll just leave that to the Lord to tell us someday. I'm sure that's one of those things that's just gonna bug you until Jesus comes. But verse 15 says, the rich shall not pay more than, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord, to make atonement for yourselves. Verse 16, you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. That it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Altar of incense. Here's how you construct that beautiful golden altar. Poll tax. Where is this coming from? Is this out of place? Listen, when we think about a census, at least historically, census uh, taking usually happens for two, two reasons, really, historically. A third reason that I think we see in play today, first is to register troops for war. You'll take a census of a people to see who you have to fight, who you have for the army, for the military, who you have registered for warfare. Second reason is to impose new taxes, I don't know how many people we have, so we know how much to charge the people. And those two things have, have played out throughout history. Registering people for war, imposing new taxes. The third one that we see in our nation is to increase local representation, therefore power of one political party over another. That's one of the things that's big time in play, and I'm not gonna get all political right now. I mean, the debate, I think, took care of politics last night. But 
It, it, it's about taking a census today. It's shifting representation. If you can get more of one party in one area, you can shift the representation and have more of a say for that party, and that's a game that's being played. But as far as the Lord is concerned, anytime a census is taken, it is dicey and it is dangerous. In fact, I think we can say that the Lord is not a fan of the census. Well, why is he calling for one here? Well, we'll talk about that. But listen to what happened when David wanted to take a census. Maybe you're familiar with the story. I'm reading from 1 Chronicles 21. Now, see, the same story is told in 1 Samuel, but it's a little more vague as to the intentions of David and why he decided to call for a census. 1 Chronicles gives it to us straight. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So by the time Chronicles comes along, side note, we're gonna go through, Lord willing, we'll do 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, or 1st and 2nd, not in that order, Samuels, 1st and 2nd Samuel, then Kings, then Chronicles. And we're gonna do that, and, and you might think, well, okay, once you've gone through 1st and 2nd Kings, Kings, isn't Chronicles then a repeat? Or just going through the same thing again, and why are you wasting that time? Chronicles is different, it is unique, and it does give us information that, Kings doesn't. Vice versa, First and Second Kings gives info that First and Second Chronicles doesn't. God is making sure we get it all, the full picture. So Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring me word that I may know their number. And Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are, but my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? See, even a hard-headed warrior like Joab knew better than to take a census. This is not a good thing, he says. Nevertheless, verse four says, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. He gave the number of the census of all the people to David of all Israel, 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. Quite an army. And Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he didn't number Levi and Benjamin among them for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. Verse seven, though, says, God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. It's been suggested that the reason he struck Israel is they took a census without the poll tax, which sounds a little harsh until you understand what the poll tax is really for, what it was about. It's a ransom. In fact, down in verse 16, he says, it's the atonement money. If you're gonna number the people, when you take a census, and I believe this was not only at the time, but this would play out. The Lord was intending this to be part of Torah law. If you take a census, when you take the census, everyone 20 and up has to pay that half shekel atonement money. Why? It's a ransom. It will protect you against a plague breaking out. And so some say, well, David, Joab, they didn't ask for the poll tax, they just took the census and so the plague hit. Well, if that's so, there's a reason that that would take place. God does not like the census. 
Now, it's necessary sometimes, and the Lord recognizes that. In fact, it's necessary right here in Exodus where he wouldn't be asking Moses to do it, but he says, with this necessary thing, I want you to check yourselves. I want you to be covered. I want you to pay the atonement money. Why does God have such a hard time with the census? Because counting heads generates human pride. Always does. Always does at church, too. One thing to say, yeah, you know, 17 people showed up. It's another thing to say, man, we were busting out the doors. Pride. Man, the place was just packed. Pride. We, we must have had 1,000 people there. Ego. That's where we go. And the Lord knows that. Ego is where we go. <laughs> it's a pride thing. But the other thing that counting heads, counting seats does is it diminishes the value of the individual. And God cares for every single one. He's always focused on the one. He sees the many. He's aware of the many. He loves the many. But because he loves the one, people are not numbers to God. People are not statistics ever to the Lord. Everyone matters. Luke 15, 7 is proof positive of that when Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That is to say, more joy in heaven over one person who drops to their knees and gives their life to the Lord in their living room all alone on a Sunday morning rather than every seat filled in the local church. It's the individual, and God's always got his eyes on the person. Well, so why this census? Why now? Because God is teaching, and he intends something very special to come out of this. It's not random, it's ransom. Not counting heads, it's a cover charge, literally. It's the atonement money. It is payment for covering and by the way, that's the reason why it flows perfectly and logically right where it is here. If you look back at verse 10 of this same chapter, in talking about the altar of incense, look at what God has just said. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. He shall, make a, he, he shall atone right there at the altar of incense. He's also on this day, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, he's also gonna go in and make atonement at the mercy seat. He does it both places. Why? Because, well, the mercy seat is the place of mercy, obviously, but the altar of incense is the place of prayer. And so the atonement would be brought right to the place of prayer so that prayer wouldn't be interrupted between the people and the priesthood and the Lord. So atonement was made, but note that three times in verse 10. Make atonement, you shall make atonement, and you'll have the sin offering of atonement, and the word is kippur, or kapar, in the Hebrew, and that same exact word, three times used right here, is used three times at the end of this section on the poll tax and the census. Verse 15, you shall give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement, kippur, for yourselves. You shall take the atonement money, the kippurim. So it's just the plural form, the atonement money that's given. And then at the end of the verse, he says again, to make kapar, atonement for yourselves. Same stem word, atonement, yom kippur, kippur. 
And so both the altar of incense and the ransom money are described with threefold emphasis on atonement. That, interesting, that number three kind of slides in there even as Jesus resurrected on the third day. Making a whole lot more than atonement for us, not simply covering our sin, but washing it away by his blood in what's called, and you know the word by now, propitiation. A complete satisfaction of the righteousness of God. It's called the atonement money. And note this, it is a half of a shekel of silver. Now, again, that's by weight, not by coin, and so that would be a fifth of an ounce of silver. By today's standard, that would be about five bucks. So we're not talking about a lot, although by the standard back then in ancient times, five bucks would go a long way. Right now, you're lucky if you can get a Starbucks for five bucks. They should call it five bucks, you know? <laughs> but back then, five bucks, that, that would buy food for a couple of days. So it, it wasn't just chump change, and yet at the same time, it wasn't outlandish, it wasn't ridiculous. It was a fifth of an ounce of silver, but you all know this, Bible students, that silver is the color of redemption in the Bible. So once again, God provides that this silver would be shown. The, the atonement money, it had multiple purposes. It was a pre-tabernacle payment of atonement. See, God's looking ahead. Yom Kippur hasn't happened yet. Tabernacle's not even put together yet, and he's calling for this payment of atonement right now, right up front. Why? To cover them now. Before the other actions are even taken, God is already covering his people. Secondly, this atonement money, we'll find out in chapter 38, was melted, collect, collected, melted down, and cast for the silver sockets and hooks throughout the tabernacle. That's where the silver comes from for those hooks and sockets. And, and note what he says here, that it may, verse 16, last part of the verse, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. That is, that they would see it. Every time anyone entered that outer courtyard, they would see all the silver. And it would stand as a memorial reminder to them they have been covered. They have been atoned for. And so, it, it was a reminder of atonement. It paid for the sockets and, and hooks. And the Lord used it to cover the people against any plague breaking out on them whenever they would take a census, which also was there to kind of check their spirits. This is not about you, the Lord would be saying. It's about me. I'm the atonement. I'm the one who brings atonement, who covers you. But also, it would be there in the tabernacle as they journeyed with his holy presence among them. A reminder we are in the presence of a holy God. We must be covered. And so that silver was visible all over the tabernacle as a reminder of a price paid. So think of it this way. It's another divine teaching tool, and there are so many of these throughout the Bible, throughout Torah law. A divine teaching tool for something mankind still has a hard time comprehending. What is that? I call it the exacting severity of holiness. We don't fully get it. At times we do. We have our bright shining moments where we recognize we are in the presence of a holy God. 
we have sometimes that, that sense of, of holy fear of what he can do and who he is and how awesome he is. And I'm not, just stay with me because I'm not taking away from the nearness of God and the affection of God and the closeness of God, but there is this holiness factor that is exacting, it is severe, and some might even recoil at that kind of you know, description of the Lord. It sounds so strict. He is a strict God. Righteousness is strict. Righteousness is absolute in its requirement that every law be kept, that we must be perfect before the Lord. It's so serious. Paul wrote like this, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's very plain. God is not playing around here. He's serious about our response to him. And if you turn over or just listen to this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, the Hebrew pastor says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. Those three things, listen, to deny Jesus, part of what we need to understand is the denial of Jesus Christ is trampling the Son of God. It is regarding his perfect pure blood as unclean and it's insulting the spirit of grace. The Hebrew pastor spares no expense, makes no bones about it in the severity of the holiness of God and even goes beyond that. He says, for we know him who said, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 and 36, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. This is serious, severe business and he finishes this little section by saying it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So when someone refers to God as the man upstairs, it makes me shudder. When we don't take seriously the exacting price that Jesus paid, the blood of the covenant, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But you know what? recognizing, accepting the truth of the exacting severity of holiness makes grace all the more profound. It makes grace all the more amazing. When you think about the fact that Matthew 26, 14 tells us one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver. That's the redemption money paid out in silver, and in this pre-tabernacle, so 1,500 years before Jesus would walk the earth, before the betrayal of Judas, 
this pre-tabernacle census and offering was required as God begins to educate the sons of Israel with a pittance of a ransom before a holy God. Small price to pay compared to his amazing holiness and compared ultimately to the incomparable value of the pure and priceless blood of Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or like gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. He says, no, you are redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And listen, get this. What is the value of the blood of Christ? It's eternal. It's eternal forever and ever. That's how covering his blood is. Yom Kippur was every year. You had to have the atonement every year. It only lasted a year, and it didn't even last a year. What do you mean? Because they had to sacrifice a lamb every morning and every evening in the tabernacle and in the temple. And then there were the burnt offerings and the sin offerings and the peace offerings and all the other offerings that were continual and ongoing. And then there was the blood of a Passover lamb. And there were the offerings at all the feasts and festivals of Israel throughout the year. And then Yom Kippur, on top of that, the Day of Atonement, so serious, but it was ongoing and constant. They had to keep spilling the blood of all these lambs and rams and goats until Jesus, until he gave his blood and the complete satisfaction of God's righteousness was paid, propitiation. God is beginning to instruct his people now on the ways of redemption, on the ways of atonement. And we recognize 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, John says, in this is love. So counterbalance the severity of holiness with this. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Grace in the context of God's holiness is truly amazing. So when you do this census, make sure you receive from everybody the atonement money. By the way, this is gonna be the same money that when they come to Jesus saying, hey, you and your disciples, don't you pay the poll tax? That's what they're talking about. And it's where Jesus sends Peter off to go grab a fish and get open its mouth. Peter does, out comes the shekel, so there's a half shekel for both he and the Lord, and he pays the poll tax. Well, that's what this was. They, they carried it on to be an ongoing tax of kind of a different sort. But verse 17, picking up and continuing now, so we see this, this atonement money following in this whole thought and this teaching of atonement, so the, the process is perfect. And then we come to verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze. Now, we haven't heard about this yet. This is the final piece of furniture for the tabernacle, and it's mentioned here in this place, a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. And you shall put it before the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to Minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice so they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die. 
and it shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. And we see that God was teaching hand washing long before COVID-19 ever hit. <laughs> they had to wash hands and feet. But understand this, this final tabernacle furnishing, it's just a wash basin. We're not even given the, the size of this thing. So it probably wasn't even that big. And it would have a little stand and it stood. So you, you'd walk into, if, if you all were coming toward me into the tabernacle, the first thing you'd see is that great bronze altar, seven and a half feet square, where all the sacrifices took place. Then on the other side of that would be the bronze laver, washing hands and feet. Then they could enter into the tabernacle itself, that is the holy place, golden altar of incense. No, no, <laughs> the golden menorah, the altar of incense, and the golden table of showbread. And then the veil, and behind the veil would be the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, I'm gonna keep saying that as we go, just so we really get that into our heads. We can, we can see that walking into the tabernacle. But this bronze laver can be misunderstood and misapplied. As we've talked about, everything in the tabernacle portrays Jesus. And everything that God is doing, even though these are practical aspects of worship and, and adoration and devotion to him, and, and though they are shadowy representations of actual things in heaven, they're also teaching tools, everyone. The bronze basin, the bronze laver is the same, but I want you to be clear on this, it is not a picture of baptism, which is not to undermine or say baptism is unimportant. But the bronze laver is not a picture of baptism. Paul said in Romans 6, verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into his death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a newness of life, brand new life. So baptism is at the outset, or that's the intention. Now, sometimes people don't really know about that or haven't heard teaching on baptism or don't know that it's, it's significant. They'll give their lives to Jesus. They'll walk in faith for years. We've had it happen many times here at the bridge where someone will say, I never really thought baptism was important, but I understand now. Can I be baptized? And I say, no. I'm sorry, that ship has sailed. We don't allow, no. Of course, of course, of course. Because ultimately, we know that baptism doesn't save you, but it is an act of obedience to the Father. It's just simply saying, I, I, Lord, you asked me to do it, I will do this. And it outwardly represents what God has inwardly done. And that's the beauty of baptism to us. But recognize, understand, baptism is a forefront type thing. You give your life to the Lord, and then you step out in obedience. And at least in the scriptures, that's like the first thing you do. To say to the world, I have Jesus, I have been washed in the blood of the lamb, and so I am showing, I am declaring in the waters of baptism that this has taken place. So baptism would be far more similar to the washing of Aaron and his sons on the day of their consecration. See, that was full body washing, what would be translated in the Jewish mikvah, the full immersion bath, consecrational washing at the outset, at the beginning of the high priestly ministry, Exodus 29, verse four said, you shall bring Aaron and his son, sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water, not just hands and feet, head to toe. We'll see it play out in Leviticus chapter eight, verse six. Moses had Aaron and his sons come near and he washed them with water, head to toe. Why are you going off on this, Rick? Because the bronze laver is not for that kind of washing. 
This is not the, the mikvah. This is not the full immersion. This is not the head-to-toe washing. This is hands and feet. It's there to wash your hands and your feet. It was used every day. You didn't enter the inner court of the tabernacle without washing your hands and your feet. And the rabbis have some kind of funny descriptions of how this happens, that they actually would wash the right hand and the right foot at the same time. I'd love to see that. And then the left hand and the left foot, you know, they'd stick into the basin. They'd be like, you know, standing on one foot. I don't know. I don't know how they did it. But every time they entered into the holy place, they had to wash their hands, wash their feet. If that doesn't portray baptism, then what does it portray? It portrays the continual, ongoing, cleansing work of Jesus Christ in your life and mine. There's a different word for it, sanctification. The bronze laver is a picture of sanctification. Think about this. Think of all the work that they did on this side of the bronze laver. The reason why the bronze laver was between the bronze altar and the inner court. Because at the bronze altar, they got blood on them. They got entrails on their hands and, and feet. They got innards of the, of the animals sacrificed and, and then there was ash and smoke from the altar and there was the mess of even, the, even offering the other offerings, the, the grain offerings and the drink offerings would be messy and spills and, and then they're out there in the, in the dust and, and that's getting on feet and hands and, and everything's sticking and the oils and the incense and the blood and the guts and it was messy ministry. Hey, guess what? Ministry is messy. And I'm not talking about professional ministry. Indeed, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Ministry is messy. If you determine to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, it will be messy. There's no way around it. You don't walk clean every day, just shining and bright. You don't, I remember a pastor said when I was a kid, it's not like when you get baptized, you come out of the water covered in Teflon and then sin just kind of rolls right off. You know, nothing sticks to you. Oh no, stuff sticks. Ministry is messy. And so Jesus got up from the supper and he set aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself, John 13. And he poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Another way to say that is, if I don't wash you, you can't be where I am. If I don't sanctify you, you can't come into this holy place. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed, get this, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And he says, and you are clean, but not all of you, referring, of course, to Judas. There is, in all of our lives, an ongoing daily need for washing which is what Jesus meant when he said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. I've been bathed. I've gone into the waters of baptism. I've been washed head to toe. I've been fully immersed. I've been cleansed at the outset as, a, as an announcement of what God did 
in the reality in my spiritual man, I am washed and clean. I've had that experience. That's taken place. Now I need daily cleansing of my hands and feet because my hands and feet get dirty every single day. The daily walk of a disciple gets mud on your feet and dirt on your hands because ministry is messy. And it's not just my own sins and failures, lack of integrity and problems and issues. It's not just the stuff that I inadvertently do by the sin nature and fall down and oh man, I've fallen down again and in falling my hands got dirt all over them. I need to get washed, I need to get sanctified. Guess what? It's also other people's stuff. If you determine to love people with the love of Christ, their mess is gonna get on you. That is their anger, their gossip, their lust, their rebellion, their frustrations, their gossip, their temptations, their allegations, their, their slanders. Gets on you, and some of that stuff sticks. And if you've ever been accosted in the name of Jesus, or even, even not in the name of Jesus, if you've ever had someone just come at you because they didn't understand, they didn't know your intent, they didn't get what your heart was behind what you did, and so they go after you. If you've ever been in that place, you need to get washed. Because I don't know about you, but I can tell you what I do. My head hits the pillow, and I go, Ugh. and that dirt's still there, and it sticks until I get sanctified. We need his washing every single day. And man, it's beautiful. How, how can... How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119 verse nine asks, and it answers by keeping it according to your word. Here's the bronze laver, my friends. John 15, three, Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. John 17, 17, sanctify them, he says to the Father, in the truth, your word is truth. The sanctifying, cleansing work of the word in our lives. I can't even explain to you exactly how it works. What's happening right now tonight as we're in the word together is we are getting washed. Our feet are getting clean. Our hands are getting washed of the dirt of the day, the stuff that would normally stick, which is why Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Jesus is our bronze laver. Being the word of God himself, who washes us every day, day to day, through the cleansing sanctification of his word. And that's, I think, what the bronze laver portrays for us. The ongoing washing of the sanctifying word of God. And so continuing then, moreover, verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take also for yourself the finest of spices. I really like this section. Of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels. Shekels is implied. Again, it's a weight. It's not the coin, it's a weight. And of fragrant cinnamon, half as much, so 250. And of fragrant cane, 250. And of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, a hen. You take all this stuff, and you shall make these 
Of these, a holy anointing oil, verse 25, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. And it reminds me, I don't put on aftershave before my shower. I just wash it right off. So we're right in the flow of things as he's just talked about the bronze labor and the washing, and now we get to the anointing right in, in line. What's interesting is this amounts to, if, you, if you're into jotting these things down, if you'd like the recipe here, it's 12 and a half pounds of myrrh, it's six and a half pounds cinnamon, six and a half pounds fragrant cane, 12 and a half pounds of cassia, which came from a sweet tree bark, and you mix all of that, you're gonna like this less, in a gallon of olive oil. <laughs> and that was the oil of anointing. That was the amount of the mixture. And of course, they made more than that because they had more than they had to do. But, but that was, you know, equal, that was what the parts were that were to be mixed together for each amount as they made this sweet oil of anointing. Now, I don't have to go far into this without you all knowing the Bible is packed with examples of anointing oil being a reminder or a picture of the Holy Spirit. But let's be very specific. Whose spirit are we talking about? This is the spirit of Christ. I encourage you sometime, go through the book of Acts and note every time the spirit is mentioned and look at all of the names. First of all, he never is given a, a specific name. It's not like Yahweh, Yeshua, and Joe. Joe the spirit, you know. It's, it's the Holy Spirit, spirit of God, spirit of Jesus, spirit of Christ, the spirit, the helper, all of this spirit of truth, and again, you can track this through Acts, especially, all the different references to the spirit, but this is the spirit of Christ, and the anointing oil is a great picture of that because, of course, anointing is Mashiach, or Mashach in the Hebrew. Christ is anointed one. Messiah is anointed one. So this is the spirit, picture of the spirit of the anointed one who is the spirit of Christ, who is the Holy Spirit, same spirit. And the Bible's filled with this. In fact, holy anointing oil in the Hebrew is shemen, that's oil. Meshat, which is from Meshach, which is Messiah, that, that's anointing, and then kodesh, holy. Shemen, Meshach, kodesh. That is the oil of anointing that is holy. Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers of, take their counsel together against the Lord, which is a crazy thing, makes him laugh, a laughter of incredulity when the Lord, <laughs> the Lord in heaven will laugh. But they take their stand against the Lord and against his Mashiach, against his anointed. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus says, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And you Bible students know Jesus stopped right there in the synagogue in Nazareth and closed up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and said, today, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm here. This is me. Jesus stopped right there. What he left out, the rest of the verse, Isaiah 61, verse two, at the end of the verse, and the day of vengeance of our God, because it was not that day yet. 
The day of the vengeance of our God is on hold during this age of grace. And Jesus also would continue to comfort all who mourn. We're gonna come back to Isaiah 61 in a minute. But it's interesting to me that Yahweh formed, he, he, he formulated this anointing oil precisely. It's very, very specific. It's very unique. And it is only, kind of like the incense, it is only to be used for anointing oil. Don't take this stuff and use it for aftershave. Don't use this for a perfume in your homes. That is not allowed. He's very specific about this. But why, why these four ingredients? Before we go any further with it, four things he specifically calls out. And, and I, want, I want you to notice this. It's so cool. The first thing is cinnamon. Cinnamon in the Hebrew is kinnamon. So it's very close. I find that interesting when that happens because it's kind of rare with Hebrew to English, but kinnamon. But kinnamon, the root word of kinnamon is kinah. Kinah means zeal or jealousy. So we have an aspect of this anointing oil that is akin to zeal. Psalm 69, verse nine, for zeal, kinah, for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And you may recall after Jesus cleaned house in the temple in Jerusalem, his disciples remembered, John 2, 17, that it was written, zeal, kinah, or jealousy, for your house will consume me. That's the first ingredient, or second ingredient, actually. I'll come back to the first. And then the next ingredient there is, is cane, and that's cane. Cane is translated branch. Now, there are other words for branch that are interesting in the scripture too, like netzer, where we get the word Nazareth from, and netzer is branch, and that is actually prophetically applied to Jesus. But here, branch, it's the word cane, and it speaks of the kind of branch that is listed in Exodus 25, 32, six cane, Six branches shall go out from its sides, three branches from the lampstand on its one side and three branches from the lampstand on its other side. So there's a connection here in this anointing oil with this kene, which is the same word used to speak of those branches on the golden menorah. Keep that in mind. The menorah itself, a picture of the Holy Spirit. And then there's cassia. So we've got kinoth, kinemon, kinoth, zeal, we have Cain, branch. We have cassia, which is in Hebrew, kidah. And kidah has a root word, kidad, or kadad, which means to bow the head or to stoop low. Isaiah 57, verse 15, thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. And with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You wanna talk about stooping low, John 1:14 tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But of these four requisite spices in God's anointing oil recipe, to me the most intriguing is the first one and it is myrrh. And I'm sure you saw this. Myrrh, like frankincense, is that, that, that fragrant incense. So myrrh, this special spice, is one of the gifts given to Jesus at his, 
after his birth there in Bethlehem, when they came and saw the child at the house, Matthew chapter two, verse 11, they opened up gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So two of these three gifts, actually all three were used in the tabernacle. Gold's all over everything, right? Frankincense in the, in the holy incense to be offered. And now myrrh is part of the anointing oil and all three were given to Jesus. But if you study these things, you know myrrh is also a burial spice. In fact, it's primarily a burial spice in the Middle East at that time. John 19, 39, Nicodemus, who first came to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. It's a strong-smelling spice and therefore able to cover the smell of a decaying body. And so he came with a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight, to, to cover the body of Jesus. Furthermore, Myrrh must be crushed to release its sweet fragrance. It hardens first into a, a little teardrop shape, kind of a, a stony teardrop shape, and then they would just crush it, and in the crushing of it, it would release that scent, and that's how myrrh was put together. So if you put all four ingredients of this anointing oil together, you get the zeal of the Lord branched out, stooped down, and was crushed in Jesus Christ. Again, a picture not only of Jesus, but being the holy anointing oil, a picture of the spirit of Christ, the anointed one. And all of the recipe called for these sweet spices to be combined in a gallon of olive oil, that pure olive oil. And I love this because John the Baptist is the one who said, speaking of Jesus, John 3.34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. So you can imagine that gallon of oil just being dumped on the person receiving the spirit of the Lord. He gives his spirit without measure. He gives all of his spirit. Or as my dear brother Don Coglin once said, he's given, all that he, he's given us his entire spirit. We always go, Lord, I want more of your spirit. Well, he's already given his spirit. He can't give you any more. He's already given you all of himself. It's all, he's, he's available to you. How much we're willing to walk in him and with him, that's the issue but he has poured out without measure of his spirit on you and on me, which is why this anointing oil is so precious. Continuing in verse 26, with it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and the laver and its stand. You shall also consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. That is set apart, unique for a specific purpose. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons. Same oil of anointing here. And consecrate them that they may minister as priests to me. You shall speak to the sons of Israel saying, this shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations it shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make anything like it in the same proportions. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. By the way, we're not even sure some of these ingredients we know. Other ingredients were uncertain, so that we really can't make this same oil that they made back then, although they're trying really hard right now in Israel for the, for the next temple. It shall not be poured on anyone's body. I already read that, verse 33. Whoever shall mix any like it or whoever puts any of it on a layman shall be cut off from his people. Serious business. Everything and everyone involved with the tabernacle specifically was anointed. 
everything. Total covering, the furnishings, the tent, the utensils, the garments, the priestly servants, they would all be covered. The very tabernacle itself were covered. Let me just ask you tonight, are you anointed? Are you anointed with the Spirit of Christ? It's an interesting question, and if you asked various groups of people in the church, you would get all kinds of different answers as to how we would know. How do I know that I am anointed? Some would say you speak in tongues. And if you speak in tongues, or if you have a prayer language, you clearly are anointed. I wouldn't dispute that, but it's not the only way. Oh, well then it's one of the other gifts of the spirit, right? Yeah, that could, that could bear out that you have the anointing of Christ. Oh, it's the fruit of the spirit. Even better. Love, joy, peace, patience, the whole list. Sure, yeah, that, that, could, that could show. But there's something we often don't talk about that I think is marvelous. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 45. Psalm 45, just a couple of verses, but I want you to see this, and may, you may even want to circle or underline or highlight it. Put little happy faces beside it. Psalm 45, verse 6. And if you want proof positive that you have the anointing of the Spirit of Christ, listen to this. Psalm 45, verse 6. You ready? Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. By the way, in the Scriptures, how long is forever and ever? Thank you. It's forever and ever. This is eternal. We're dealing with eternal things. He says, a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. Who's being talked about here? He started in verse six saying, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And now he says, therefore, God, your God. He's talking to God. But now he says, God, your God. He's talking about Jesus, all right? This is a prophetic psalm speaking specifically of Jesus in his position in the Godhead. And he says, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, that's Mashiach or Mashaha, with the oil, note this, of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Did you catch that? Cassia, myrrh, this is anointing oil he's talking about. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. The oil of joy has made you glad. There are all kinds of signs that the fruit, you know, and the gifts of the Spirit that you have the anointing, but don't miss this. Joy and gladness are inherent to the anointing of Christ. How do you know that you are anointed by Jesus? You're glad. You're joyful. You rejoice in his name. Despite the circumstances or conditions or happenings of our life, you know that you have his anointing when you have that joy. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The, the joy is his. It is the gladness of Christ. It is the gladness of his anointing that 
gives you joy, that gives me joy, that allows us to walk in a world, even a world falling apart and crazy and lawless, we still can walk with joy because of the Spirit, because of the anointing. And continuing on with that Isaiah 61 passage that Jesus applies to himself in the Nazareth synagogue, the third verse of Isaiah 61 says, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Tell you what, if you're bummed out in this season at all, go to Isaiah 61 verse three and pray for the anointing. Because the anointing of Jesus is an anointing that brings joy to the heart, to the spirit, and it is a deep abiding joy that goes way beyond what's happening in my life. My current circumstance, my difficulties, challenges, problems, whatever, the joy of the Lord, that's how you know. That's proof positive. Well, the rest of chapter 30 continues on. You're looking at this going, whoa, wait, we still have another chapter. I know, just hang on, because the rest of chapter 30 just gives the incense ingredients, and we've already done that. So skip down to chapter 31. We just covered a lot of space. Chapter 31, verse one. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I, I hope you're noting that we've heard that a few times tonight. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, that's important. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. And to make artistic designs for the work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Asmach of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all who are skillful. So it's not just these two guys. They're gonna be the leaders of it, Bezalel and Aholiab. And I've put skill that they may make all that I have commanded you. I, I get the picture of Moses and he's there before the Lord somewhere in the 40 days, perhaps toward the end. And the Lord has described all these things. And he's got a look on his face like I can't make any of this. It's like me when, when Cheryl says, Rick, we have a plumbing problem. I'm like, <laughs> Google. I don't have the skill. To, I, I mean, I can, I can poke around and, you know, cause a flood in the bathroom, call someone who knows what they're doing. So Moses is like, you're, you're giving me all this. I gotta do, I gotta do. No, 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 no. I, I've given you Bezalel and Aholiab and a bunch of guys who are gonna work with. It's not just dependent on you, Moses. And he says, I, I've given them skill that they may make all that I have commanded you. And by the way, verse six, skillful and skill. Literally, I have made them wise of heart and given them wisdom. I don't know why the translators miss that because that is Holy Spirit stuff. In fact, in the listing of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah chapter 11, verse two, it starts with wisdom and understanding, which are the first two things we see in verse three. This is of the Spirit. I've given wisdom and understanding, knowledge, that's also on the list of the Spirit's ministry. And so he does it to make them wise of spirit themselves, God's spirit, making their spirits wise and giving them wisdom that they may make all that 
was commanded there to Moses. Verse seven, the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony and the mercy seat upon it and all the furniture of the tent. The table also with all its utensils and the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the laver with its stand and the woven garments as well. Good. <laughs> Moses, you don't have to stitch. And the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons with which to carry on their priesthood, the anointing oil also, so you don't have to be a cook or, or a maker of fine perfumes, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them according to all that I have commanded you. And in these verses, the Lord sums up what he's been speaking to Moses over the last 40 days, Exodus 25 through 31. And he puts in charge, here's what I want you to do now, here are the guys to do it. Bezalel and Aholiab, and they're gonna have a whole crew working with them that I have given the ability to. I have gifted. Bezalel means, I love his name, in the shadow of God. Or it can also translate in the shade of God. And it's not like the shade like we would say today, we're throwing shade. It's the shade of God means the Lord's protection. So Bezalel means under the Lord's protection, under the shadow of God. Psalm 91, verse one, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, the covering, the protection. So that's Bezalel, son of Uri and son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And then we also have Aholiab, the son of Asamach of the tribe of Dan. Aholiab's name, this is great, means the father's tent. So he actually picks someone whose name is Dad's Tent to make Dad's Tent. <laughs> so Oholiab, Ab is father, or Abba, as we hear in the Hebrew. Oholiaba. And, and he has that wonderful name. And, and it could be that it's part, well, it's obviously a wordplay, but it's, it's an actual guy, and he's actually going to work on the father's tent. I think that's beautiful. But what makes these guys special is not their names, it's not their skill, it's not their personal training. What makes them special is their anointing. J. Alec Mottier says, Bezalel and Aholiab might not have had the ceremonial anointing with the oil of the priesthood, but they had the reality which it symbolized. Which would you rather, to have the anointing oil poured on you like Aaron and his sons, or to be anointed by the Spirit of God himself with these gifts of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. They had the filling of the Holy Spirit to do the work that was set before them. And note that because it's the Spirit who's, who's in the drawings. You know the old phrase, the devil is in the details? Uh-uh, the Spirit is. Where God is concerned, where God is deliberate, his Spirit's in the drawings and in the carvings and in the carpentry and in the stone cutting. He was in the weaving and the needlework and the tailoring and the artistry of this whole thing. This was going to be not only plans given by the Spirit of God, by the Lord, but actually worked out and constructed artistically by the gifting and the anointing of the Spirit. Again, the Spirit of the Lord, Isaiah 11:2, will rest on him, speaking of Messiah the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And you know what? That's how it works. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. Verse seven says, to each one is given the manifestation for the spirit of the spirit for the common good. And then Paul goes on to list some of these manifestations. You know what? The list is not exhaustive. 
for those who would say these are the spiritual gifts. You know, it's gifts of healing and, well, let me do the list. It's the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, there are two, faith, gifts of healing, affecting of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, various kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues, and there are some who say, that's the list. Oh, no, 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 the list is much bigger. In fact, going back to Bezalel and Aholiab, the list includes artistry. It includes artistic ability, craftsmanship, carpentry, the cutting of stones, the weaving of threads. All of these things are gifted by the Spirit. I, I, I think we will be surprised when we get into the presence of Jesus how many gifts people had that they didn't even know was a spiritual gift. Because we get so hung up on the list, but it's clearly more. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 12 says, but the one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one just individually just as he wills. You know what that means? That means that if you have a certain spiritual gift, it's, it's not really you. It's the Spirit on you and, and in you and upon you that is working this gift in and through you. you. We don't get the credit. You know, that guy just performed a miracle and what the world goes is, oh, that guy's amazing. He's whole. No, no, no. The Spirit did that. God did that. I love that Jesus, in all of his miracles, the people always praised God. He's the one who said, Live your, let your light shine so that people may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Down in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, you're Christ's body. Individually members of it, God's appointed in the church, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And then he says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? And all do not interpret, do they? but earnestly desire the greater gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. Let me just say this. We all know what the excellent way is, right? Love. Love is the excellent way. Love is our pursuit. But get this, please don't miss this. In all of our pursuing the spiritual gifts, and we should, and we should earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit. But in our pursuit of that, don't forget the gift. Don't pursue the gifts so hard that you forget the gift. Acts chapter two, verse 38, Peter said, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the gift that allows the function of the gifts. And we can so quickly rush to the gifts that we forget that it's all about the gift it's all about the Spirit. Man, without his presence, his navigation, his love, we're a bunch of noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. We can't even get to love unless we have the present Spirit of God having anointed us himself. He is the anointing. And then he works the gifts in us and through us as he de determines, as he intends People always ask the question, how do I know God's will? How do I know God's will? How did Israel know God's will? They waited for it. 
Sometimes not too well. In fact, right now, 40 days, you know, they're not waiting. We'll see that on Sunday. They're messing up big time because they were not waiting for the Lord. But the Lord designed a pattern that we need to learn from, and that is we wait on the Lord. Israel could not move from where they were. They had to wait on the Lord, and when the Lord was ready to go, the cloud would lift and begin to move. And that's when they broke down the tabernacle and covered the furniture and gave, put the poles and lifted up, and, and off they went. Not until the Lord moved. Until he moved, they didn't move an inch. They stayed right where they were. What does that have to do with all this? Listen. We move in the Spirit, and to walk in the Spirit means that we move when he moves. And if he's not moving, we're not moving. If he's not leading, we're not going. Unfortunately, we often go without him. We can rush ahead. We can presume to know, wait for it. You've heard me say that many times over the years, and I don't know of a time in the last 20 years of my life when I waited and it was the wrong thing to do. I can give you several examples when I rushed on ahead and it was not a good idea. But to wait on the Lord and he then well, the Bible says renews our strength, but he shows us. So even when it comes to the spiritual gifts, I want spiritual gifts in my life. I, I wanna be just covered with the spirit. I wanna function in the gifts. I wanna flow in the gifts. Great, wait on the spirit. Seek him. Love God, love people, and let him move. Wait for him to gift you. He will. It took a long time in my life for me to recognize what he was doing to figure out, oh, that's what you want me to do. Long time. And it probably wouldn't have taken so long if I had waited for it <laughs> early on. My point is that learning to walk in the presence of the Holy Spirit means learning to wait on his guidance. Isaiah chapter 50, verse four, speaking again of Messiah, says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. That's the tongue of the follower that I may know how to sustain a weary one with a word. And he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear. And I was not disobedient, Jesus would say, nor did I turn back. It's prophetic of Jesus, but it's also emblematic of every disciple, every follower of the Lord, that we find our strength, we find our rest, and we understand our gifts when we wait on the Lord. And he will bring them in the right time. But read on, verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you shall surely observe my Shabbats, my Shabbatim. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Wait a minute, so we have just gone from uh, census to anointing oil to incense to skilled craftsmen, and now we're talking about Sabbath. And so I, I, I get it. I see why some say he's just putting together all the things that were missed early on. No, no, this is flowing right, right down the line of the gifts and the gifting of these guys. And, and wait for it, Moses, wait for it. You're not gonna have to do it. In fact, let me, can I say one more thing about that? This is wisdom. It is not Mary's job to do everything to, to make this church run. Aren't you relieved? No, it, it's Mary's job to do her part. 
It's Larissa's job to do her part. It's Jake's role to step in and do what, what has God called Jake to do. With every person in this body, all have a part. It is not my job to run this church. When I understood that, my life got a whole lot more restful. It is my job to do what God's told me to do. Unless, Donna, it is your job to do what God has told you to do. And we already read this in 1 Corinthians 12 that when every aspect of the body is doing what we're supposed to do, the body functions right. When I start trying to do Mary's job, I get in the way. Things get muddled. We all have our part. We do our part. Betzalel, Oholiab, the craftsmen, they're gonna do their part. Moses, you just bring it. That's, that's your role. Bring this down to them. Tell them what I said. They'll do that. Everyone has a part to play. But in all the work, and I love that he follows the workmen and their roles and the work that they're gonna do, he follows the work with Shabbat. As if to say, you're gonna be working on the tabernacle, don't forget the day of rest. Oh, but Lord, it's important work, it's tabernacle work, yeah. But you take your Shabbat. You don't work straight through to get this thing done. You stop. You are not, you know, let off the hook of Shabbat, which I think is beautiful. And I've completely lost my place. Oh, so it's amazing here that the, the placement of Shabbat, and he ends the chapter talking, he ends the section. He ends the 40 days talking to Moses again about Shabbat, and it's in perfect placement because it's the same way he concluded the fourth ascent of Moses. This is now the fifth, but the fourth time Moses went up the mountain, Exodus 23, verses 10 through 13, God ends talking about Shabbat. He returns to the pattern of Shabbat. He's gonna reiterate this yet again, the Sabbath principle, before the work even begins on the tabernacle in chapter 35. Shabbat matters to the Lord. He speaks it over and over. Verse 13, he says, as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, you shall surely observe my Shabbats. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Verse 14, you are to observe the Shabbat. It is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. The exacting severity of the holiness of God for whoever does any work on it, which includes Aholiab and Bezalel and the boys, uh-uh. Anyone who does work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days, verse 15, work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. Note this, a Sabbath of complete rest, is literally in the Hebrew, a Shabbat Shabbaton. A Shabbat Shabbaton. It's a way of saying a Sabbath, a ceasing from all, even ceasing, really. Stop everything. It's doubling up the word. And again, it includes the craftsmen of the tabernacle. Even God's work requires rest. Even God's calling on you and on me for ministry requires rest. We're not, you know, exempt. And this is one of the hardest things to learn, that the most practical, 
functional, skillful ministry rests in the Lord, has Shabbat in the Lord. Let me just ask you all a question. I know what my answer is. How do you typically spend your days off? Do you rest? This really stung me as I thought about this because on my days off, I do everything I don't have time to do the rest of the week. That is no Sabbath, my friends. That's not Shabbat. Shabbat is just stop. The best days, when I look back over my family life and the years of, of raising kids, the best days are the days when we do nothing but just hang out. Maybe we go in the fall and pick apples and pumpkins. Nothing of, you know, just let's just be together. Let's just go get a pizza. You know, it's the Sundays when, when Hannah and Josiah come over and the kids and they, and they run crazy and Josiah and I, we just watch the game, man. We just watch, we're not doing anything else. Don't ask me to change a diaper. Well, I don't anyway, but Josiah does sometimes. Just, we're just gonna just chill. A complete Shabbat. But when it comes to ministry, the rest is required. And the Lord says to you, says to me, you're gonna burn yourself out. Gotta rest. You take a rest. A lot of people said in this season, it surprised them how not being able to do all the things we usually do actually felt good. At least at first, you know, people started to stress about, you know, three days in. But actually having, being forced to pause, can't go out to eat, can't go to the store, can't go here, can't go, there's nowhere to go, you just gotta stay. Rest. Oh, I can't take this. That's our problem. Verse 16 says, so the sons of Israel shall observe the Shabbat to celebrate the Shabbat throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. This is an ongoing deal. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. This is unique, by the way. This is why we don't legalistically, formally keep a Shabbat as part of the church. Now, there are churches that do, but we're under the grace of God and to walk in grace and the rest of the Lord all the time. I think taking a Sabbath is a good idea, but with Israel, this is a special thing between God and his people that they are to keep. He says forever. You can debate, what does that mean for a Jewish person who comes to Christ? What does it mean for a Messianic Jew? Do they continue to keep Shabbat? And I read this, and, oh, I don't know. That's gonna hurt. But then he says this, note, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Interesting. The tabernacle blueprints, now note this, from Exodus 25 through 31 that we've been going over the last few weeks, the tabernacle blueprints actually follow the pattern of creation. I told you we would see the intentional word of God tonight. Note this, don't miss this. Six times in the passage we've studied tonight, we read this phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses saying. The Lord spoke to Moses saying. We see it in chapter 25, verse one, the beginning of the section, where he begins to give the instruction for the tabernacle and the priest. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, and he gives all those instructions. Then in chapter 30, verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and he talks about the atonement money and the census. And then in verse 17 of chapter 30, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and he begins to describe then the bronze laver. 
Chapter, chapter 30, verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses, and he talks about the anointing oil. Chapter 30, verse 34, this is now the fifth time he says the Lord spoke to Moses and he describes the incense. And then the sixth time, chapter 31, verse one, he talks about, says the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and he describes now the skilled craftsmen. And just the same as with creation, the seventh time, verse 12, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, he's talking about Shabbat, the day of rest. It lands the seventh time. Rabbis actually will divide chapters 25 through 31 into those seven sections. Even though other things are discussed throughout, that it's when the Lord spoke to Moses saying that that's one, and then two, three, four, five, six, and number seven, as with the seventh day, the pattern of creation, the Lord speaks about Shabbat. The Lord's word is never random. It's never arbitrary, it's never haphazard, it is always organized, deliberate and intentional, as I said when we began. And here he uses this same creation rationale for Shabbat that he used in the Ten Commandments. Chapter 20, verse 11. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed Shabbat and made it holy. And verse 17 ends, interestingly, that he ceased on the seventh day from labor and was refreshed. That's so fascinating to me. You know that word refreshed? You know where it was applied before? It's the same word back in chapter 23 that he used for the son of a female slave and the stranger or foreigner. Exodus 23, 12, six days you're to do your work. On the seventh day you shall cease from all labor, that is Shabbat, so that your ox and your donkey may rest that's woe. <laughs> and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. Do you remember what the word refresh means right there? Anyone remember this? Breathe. That the son of your female slave and your stranger may breathe. Just catch their breath. That's what refresh means. Now that's interesting because it says the Lord. The Lord speaking about himself in the third person says, and the Lord was refreshed from the seemingly insignificant slave and stranger to the most skillful worker, to the Lord himself, Jesus says, be refreshed. Jesus literally says, I will give you rest, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. But again, what does God literally mean saying he was refreshed? And this is one of those anthropomorphisms in the scripture where a, a human description is used of God a human term applied to God. But listen, if he says he was refreshed, and if imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and God was refreshed, then being refreshed, brothers and sisters, is not a restrictive thing. Being refreshed is the way to godliness. Resting in the Lord, being refreshed in him, devoting time simply to be, to rest in his presence, this is the path to godliness. For God himself says, I was refreshed. And then verse 18, and we'll finish. When he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And I, I still, I can't even fathom 
How beautiful that must have been. Can you imagine God's penmanship? I don't know if he wrote in cursive or you know what the Hebrew, I mean, it must have just been perfect and beautiful and written out on this, this stone, precise and elegant, the handwriting of God, the finger of God. Sadly, only Moses would see it because as he came down the mountain, as he comes down the mountain, chapter 32, you know what's gonna happen. Golden calf, the two tablets of the law are smashed. The people are breaking the law and so Moses smashes the law. And it would be lost to history. These glorious stone artifacts, these beautiful, handwritten by God. I mean, can you imagine what those would look like in the Smithsonian? Or, or the, the Genesis Museum. I mean, man, just get, to have those, ta- oh, Lord, why don't we have the tablets? Well, we'd, because we'd worship the tablets. But these beautiful tablets written by the finger of God, lost to humanity forever. But there's better. Jeremiah 31, 33, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them And on their heart, I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And then verse 34 says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. But listen, if God writes with such deliberation, with such intentionality, what does that say about your life tonight? If God gives such precise plans for the tabernacle and the priests and the garments and all that we've studied, what does it say about his intentions, his deliberateness with you? See, it tells me that he's intentional with you, that with each of our lives, he is equally deliberate, that he knows what he's doing. I don't, often, I don't know. Sometimes I know. I'm very thankful in those bright, shining moments of knowing There are many times I don't know what he's doing. I mean, I'm sorry to use it as an example again, but we're we're now a week and a half of my wife in Africa. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know why it is the way it is. I don't know how soon she'll be home. I hope it's soon. I pray it's soon. What if it's not? He knows what he's doing. He's intentional. His writing is elegant and it's perfect. And I have to remember Hebrews 12, 2, that Jesus is called the author and the finisher of faith. So if he writes all of this with such intentionality, please know tonight that he is working on your life and mine with the same exacting, elegant precision. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you for allowing us insight into these marvelous, beautiful things. Lord, real things that you required of Moses and the people to construct in the tabernacle. And yet, Lord, we know shadows of the heavenly realities. But thank you, Lord, for also giving us insight into the pictures and the types and the meaning and how they portray Jesus. And Lord Jesus, your spirit at work in us. And I just pray that we will continue to consider these and think about these through the week with thanksgiving in our hearts that we truly have an intentional God who loves beyond measure. And we love you, Lord. Thank you for the blessing of your word. In Jesus' name.